Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. On today's show, I will be speaking with Tim Lacey, author of The Dream of a Democratic Culture, Mortimer J. Adler and the Great Books Idea, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Lacey is an assistant professor and academic advisor at Loyola University in Chicago. Specialties are intellectual and cultural history and the history of education. He is co-founder of both the U.S. Intellectual History blog, and the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. In A Dream of a Democratic Culture, Lacey provides a history of the post-war ascendancy and decline of the great books, idea, and popular education. By following the career of the philosopher, educational reformer, and visionary Mortimer J. Adler and his community of Chicago intellectuals, we gain a picture of how the idea of great books took hold in mid-century. Adler's vision was to provide ordinary Americans with access to the great books of Western civilization from Homer to Freud in an intellectual movement toward what Lacey describes as a democratic culture of enlightened individuals. Beginning with Adler's How to Read a Book, published in 1940, and the founding of the Great Books Foundation in 1947, which sponsored reading groups throughout the nation, Adler was a public intellectual, popular promoter, an institution builder for the wide dissemination of great ideas. Lacey demonstrates the conflict fraught success between the desire to reinforce enduring and necessary ideas believed to be at the foundation of modern liberal society and the capitalist market's demand for the commodification of all knowledge. As a partner with the Encyclopedia Britannica Corporation to mark an initial 54-volume set of great books of the Western world, the status-anxious middle-class Americans. The popularity of the book set elided the difference between consumption and enlightenment. At the end of the century, Adler's participation as a culture war combatant in a new multicultural environment overshadowed his political, common-sense realism that supported his vision of a great conversation. By the end of the century, the idea of great books was increasingly viewed by critics as a conservative project championed by the new right. Lacey has provided his readers with an illuminating history of an idea and its reception many have heard of but few know much about. Here is my conversation with Tim Lacey. It's a pleasure to introduce Tim Lacey. Hello, Tim. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, thank you for sharing your thoughts with my audience and I must admit, in reading your book, it was very illuminating. I had heard of the great book's idea, of course, but it was sort of vague in my mind about what that was in terms of maybe it was just, you know, the great books of Western tradition. But I think it has more specific uh, definition and and uh, work to do in your particular narrative. So first, before we get into the book, tell me something about yourself, your background, how you came to write this book. Right. Um, so currently what I, I do is I, I am an academic advisor with medical students at Loyola Strick School of Medicine. I also teach a little history of medicine on the side. It seems like an odd end point for, you know, in relation to the topics of the book, but it's rooted in the fact that while I was a graduate student, I was also, uh, while I was working on the project, the dissertation and exploring all of the ins and outs of the great books idea, I was also working as a graduate assistant in an adult uh, college that was formerly for women. It was called Mundelein College, 
and it's part, uh, it was part of the Loyola University Chicago system. Uh, it's now transformed into like a school of professional studies, but at the time I was helping a lot of adult students and, and returning students and people who were uh, thinking anew about their education. And it was actually very, uh, it, it was very interactive in relation to my research. I was thinking a lot about adult education issues at work, even while I was thinking about adults that were exploring the great books idea. But I should go back a little bit further than that. Um, so I was introduced to the whole great books idea as an undergraduate at the University of Missouri. And I had a couple of, I was dissatisfied with my third degree program. I was working in chemistry, but I was too far along to change my major. And a couple of my friends suggested that I could be reading in the great books on the side as a way to get some liberal arts uh, into my life, right? Liberal arts and humanities into my life. So I actually started doing that as an undergraduate at the University of Missouri, and I was reading on the side. I continued after I graduated, and when I got a job and I was working at the state of Missouri, I, I would come home in the evenings and spend three or four hours at a coffee shop reading through Aristotle or the Aristophanes or Homer. You know, I was exploring the great books on my own after college and while I was working. So uh, these interests kind of came together. I was doing property histories for uh, Missouri's hazardous waste program, and I got interested in archival research and primary resources. I was doing a lot of property histories. And so I started realizing that between my explorations in the great books and my job that I had an intense interest in historical research. And so I brought myself back to school, uh, or, you know, applied and was accepted at Loyola Chicago's graduate history program uh, in the mid-90s. And I kind of floundered around for a topic. It didn't occur to me at first that I should try to weave the great books into my, uh, into my research. I was interested in intellectual history, but I didn't quite see that I could be doing a project on the history of the great books idea. So, yeah, that, that uh, came out after about a couple of years of coursework and talking to professors, and I started a topic and got frustrated with it. And finally, I matched up with a, a really great, uh, who would be my dissertation director, Louis Ehrenberg, and he encouraged me to do this work on the great books idea. Um, yeah, so that, that's how I came to the topic, and, and that started around 2000, you know, as a graduate student, and it took me several years of, archival research to, you know, get up to uh, the dissertation, get the dissertation finished. And the, the beginning of it was thinking about how Mortimer Adler was the key figure. But I'm getting ahead of, uh, of what you wanted to uh, address yeah. in the introduction about the difference between great, you know, what is the great book compared to, or what is the great book's idea compared to, say, the canon, right? Right, and yeah, and that's and your and your book really unpacks the whole idea of the great books, and so I want to talk a little bit about what your book is trying to do. Right, so the the Western canon, as I perceived it when I was beginning my research, was something that was more specific to me, more literary, and also more uh, based on fiction. Now there is nonfiction even in uh, many variations of definitions of the Western canon. But one of the things that I thought was very interesting about the Great Book's idea itself and in that phrasing is that very early on, um, at, uh, around World War One, a little bit before and after, that there were several figures, John Erskine, Charles Gailey, that were thinking about uh, uh, scientific works and works of philosophy and, and some more technical works, but works that were still readable and uh, had been admired and were woven into this kind of longer conversation about what important ideas existed and been, had been discussed in, in Western culture. So uh, the, the key difference for me was that many discussions about the Western canon focus on on literary uh, essays or books or poetry, whereas the Great Book Society itself was much more expansive and much more, to me, interesting because it was touching on the whole breadth of human knowledge. So, um, so who is your who is? Uh, tell us a little bit about Mortimer Adler first. Um, right. He's the main character in your book, and many people maybe have not heard of him or have heard the name but don't really know 
what his role is in all this. Right. So I'll introduce first how I became introduced to his name and then kind of how I evolved to really focus on him and the and the dissertation and then what became the book. So when I was introduced to the great books as an undergraduate, uh, a couple of my it was from a couple of my friends that were English majors, but I also had another friend in the circle who studied philosophy. And he he was familiar with Mortimer Adler's name because Adler had become more associated with culture wars topics and had also began writing on religion in the 1980s. So Adler is a, a philosopher, primarily, but interestingly enough, his PhD is in psychology, and he did tons of work on education and uh, beginning in the 19, uh, late 1930s, 1940s. And he was doing this kind of work between three different areas, between some uh, technical philosophy that was in the uh, Thomistic tradition, and later Aristotle, he became an Aristotelian. But then he was doing a lot of work on education that grew out of his contact with the great books idea. And then he had this kind of other um, a line of work that, that kind of crossed over between law and psychology. So uh, he had a nickname at the University of Chicago where uh, some other professors called him the uh, professor of the blue sky or something like that. But just this kind of vague that he had dabbled in many different areas, right? Uh, but anyway, he was, tra- uh, Aber was trained and uh, first entered college at Columbia University. And early on in his education, he, he became a student at Columbia University in 1920, I believe, 19, fall of 1919 or 1920. And during his first year, he uh, he was introduced to what was called the General Honors Course, and it was run by John Erskine. And General Honors was Columbia's new way at the time of introducing students to great books, the great books idea, and in the way that I'm discussing it of history, philosophy, science, literature, poetry, and this kind of broad way that extended beyond just the phrase uh, Western canon. Um, so, yeah, Adler, uh, he attended Columbia University. He studied and became affiliated with uh, John Erskine as an undergraduate. And then he tried to get into graduate school in philosophy, but he was denied a spot in the graduate program at Columbia because of his Jewish ethnicity. And because he couldn't get into the philosophy program, he uh, or he entered into psychology and studied under uh, Professor Poffenberger. And he ended up doing a dissertation that was on like uh, uh, psychology of music, musical theory, or something. So his it's weird his dissertation and his the thing that he got his credential on it in no way related to what he did afterwards, right? His career afterwards at the University of Chicago and what he became more famous for later in the from the 1950s forward of being a, a promoter of the great books idea. So, yes, yeah, so Adler, he earns this uh, PhD. He uh, works in uh, New York City for a little bit, for a little while, and he's involved in something called the People's Institute, which was uh, a group that was trying to bring education to adults in New York City, specifically working people. And in that, uh, in the context of the People's Institute, Adler and some other of his associates created a smaller program that dealt with great books. And that's where I think he made his kind of life choice, that he was always going to be working with and promoting great books in whatever institution he was involved with afterwards. So this is in the late 1920s. Uh, he's, he's working with the People's Institute uh, kind of along near the end of his Ph.D. work. He hurries up, finishes the Ph.D., and the next year is hired by uh, Robert Hutchins to come to the University of Chicago. And most people who are familiar with Mortimer Adler have some sense of his association with the city of Chicago and the University of Chicago and his friendship with Robert Maynard Hutchins. So this is the kind of core of his, this is the beginning of of his public persona when he's hired at the University of Chicago and he and uh, Hutchins become famous for running a great books course at the university 
And then they also start writing about public matters. They become public intellectuals while they're there. And uh, uh, Adler ends up having a role in, uh, you know, bringing great books programs to people beyond the University of Chicago in the city of Chicago. I'm skipping over some details of history here that you know from the book after reading it, but this is kind of the key period. And one of the key points in that period is late 38, 39, Adler realizes that he needs to write a book for people about reading, a book about reading. Specifically, I think reading great books is what his goal was. But then he uh, he broadens out the scope of his writing project to be uh, uh, turn it into a book about how to read a book, <laughs> how to read books well, and how to read well. Well, what's right? interesting with uh, this is the point where I think you can maybe answer a question for me. It seems to me that in reading your book, that Adler, even at this point, is already, he's making some big assumptions about American culture uh, in writing this book. Yeah. yeah. Uh, was there any, like, one assumption that you well, had I mean, in mind? It's assumption about that there's a common culture. Right, right. Yeah, and this is something I think he inherits from his, or he builds on something that he perceived and that his colleagues perceived while they were working at the People's Institute. They felt like, oh, these great books are taught in the confines of the Ivory Tower, but there's a broad desire amongst working people to understand these same works, and they become, Adler wouldn't have used this term, this is a late 20th century term, but he saw, he realized that they appreciated that kind of cultural capital that they would get out of knowing those books. But I don't, I think it was more than that because cultural capital is affiliated with uh, kind of career seeking and building your, you know, social status in society. I think what Adler and his friends saw at the People's Institute was that there was a genuine deep-seated desire amongst people to understand some of these, what makes meaning of life, right? And meaning to them through great works, whether it's uh, philosophy or literature or theology or poetry or plays or whatever. And you can, it, you and I could talk through the inadequacies of that, uh, maybe their view or Adler's view of what that kind of making meaning included or didn't include, but they still saw it as some as a kind of refuge from all the vocational concerns of, keeping a job and maintaining a family and the kind of treadmill that any person even today can relate to, right? All the regular subsistence activities that we engage in. And I think that Adler and his colleagues, Clifton Fadiman, Scott Buchanan, uh, Robert Hutchins a little bit later, um, John Erskine, they all began to see that these great books had a much broader appeal and Adler carried that ethics forward with him when he came to the University of Chicago. And so even when he and Hutchins were teaching about it there and bringing forward those assumptions that were buried about Western civilization and who's included and who's not, they still saw and realized that there was a desire for that kind of deeper meaning through reading outside of the university walls. Um, yeah, and there are buried in that project a, a number of norms, right? A number of norms that are deep-seated in Western society, gender norms, norms about sexuality, right? Uh, and then also uh, American cultural norms that are kind of built into the construction of the way the Great Books idea played out in the United States, right? A favoring of, of books that uh, uh, promoted democratic ideals, right? Uh, some of them knew. And some of some of them are innovations, right? So even they were on shifting ground as they were promoting the great books idea. Now, this uh, the book, great books really were they were kind of like carriers for something else, which was great ideas. They thought that there were yeah. some fundamental ideas that supported liberal democracies, and they wanted that those these ideas were eternal. I mean, that's what I noticed about how how much weight. Uh, these, uh, the great books and these great ideas carried in their mind. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. As as Adler and, and Hutchins refined their kind of promotion and the way they talked about the great books idea in the early 1940s and the mid-1940s, they started to discuss what they conceived of as this, quote, great conversation, unquote, about the great ideas. And for them, the way that they the way that they justified some unity um, uh, uh, or some unifying concepts amongst these books is that they were all circling in and out of larger ideas like citizenship or uh, government or law, right? These kind of very general big topics. Some of them are ideas and some of them are topics, right? They, they, they don't all have that kind of ethereal uh, uh, a form, you know, some of the platonic ideal form about them. Some of them that feel very gritty and practical, right? Like talking about the law, right? Uh, or, but some of it is the idea of law, but some of it are how laws have changed, right, over time. So there's this mix of ideas and practical that they see in the conversation, what they call the great conversation, and how that's developed in what they saw as Western culture, right, from Greek and Roman period up through the present. So that was another key difference. I didn't discuss this earlier, but one of the innovations of the great books idea is it avoided the whole trap of the classics, meaning the classics as conceived of studying Greek and Roman culture. So the great books idea, one of its other advantages was that it brought the chronology much further forward and well past uh, into modernity, right? Whether you think of it as an American modernity or a Western or a European modernity, definitely the books that they were thinking about were right up to or close to the present. So, yeah, they, they conceived of this uh, great conversation about a limited number of great ideas, and that for them was the unifying thread. Now, one of the things I argue in the book is that Adler was uh, very influenced by uh, intellectual historian, author Lovejoy, right, the, the kind of founder of the whole field of the history of ideas. And Arthur Lovejoy uh, is pretty explicit in his writings about saying that he thinks most of the history of ideas could be reduced to a relatively small number of what he called unit ideas. And Adler admired Lovejoy for a number of reasons, but he also brought along that history of ideas mentality, and he incorporated it very explicitly in the way that uh, he and Robert Hutchins would instantiate the Great Books idea in that very famous Britannica set that was published in 1952. So I make some arguments in the book about how Adler, not only was he a a philosopher who had some standing in the Thomistic community. But I also argue that he was really working hard. He was doing a lot of very inadequate work as a historian or a lot of uh, kind of amateur work as a historian and had a very amateurish philosophy of history. This is yeah, this, this, yeah, this was, uh, excuse me, Tim, but this was one of, no, the, it's okay. this was one of the things that you were, uh, that you talked about that I thought was very interesting, his approach to, to ideas historically, right. how he thought about thought historically. So you, please go into that because I think it's a yeah. very interesting. Yeah, and so one of the things I, I get at in the book is this uh, uh, question of context and Adler's view of context and how he either overlapped or departed somewhat from maybe Lovejoy's vision of the history of ideas and how it would use context. And Adler at one point called his uh, own history of ideas a kind of anti-history of ideas. It was He called it the non-historical study of the history of ideas. And he was using that intentionally to put off those who thought that they were going to get loads and loads of social and economic and cultural context around each one of the <clears throat> books as it presented the ideas. Um, so, yeah, the, the key there is the question of context and how Adler and his cohort, what I called his community of discourse, and I very intentionally borrowed that from uh, David Hollinger, right, David Hollinger's earlier writings where he explicitly talks about this means of contextualizing intellectual history. So it's kind of a funny irony there, right? I'm, I'm a, 
I'm contextualizing Adler in a historian of ideas sense with another historian of ideas, another iteration of intellectual history. But yeah, I mean, I was trying to get at these very deep questions about history and context that surround any endeavor that involves the great books. And no one has ever solved those questions and no one ever will. I don't believe that that is a promoter of the great books idea. At best, what I think happens is you read great books and you get interested in great books and it opens up questions for you about context. And they won't necessarily be answered by Adler and his community of discourse, but they can get you there. They can get you to a larger inquiry about history and the history of ideas and intellectual history and cultural history. It's, it's part of the issue here, too, the way he sees the, the reader. Does he believe that you could, did he believe that you, a reader could pick up a book and have access to these very important ideas, direct access, uh, without the consideration of, of, of context, not only the, the context of when the ideas were produced, but everything that has happened since and the context of the reader himself. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you know, the, the great books tradition, the great conversation is a theory of history. And so they are getting a, a means of looking at change over time. And they are actually, the ideas get a kind of linear context because you see how they, maybe some of them change over time. But you never get the horizontal context that you need, right? You never get in any one point of time and any production of any book, say one of uh, Shakespeare's plays, you never get the full horizontal context of the of the late was 15th century or late late you know, late 16th century. You're not really getting that full feeder of of issues that that created the circumstances for the production of those works. But you do do get a different kind of context where you're seeing. So you get maybe not context, but another aspect of historical thinking, right? You're getting change over time and maybe some indications of causation and you're, you're understanding certain characters in history. So you're getting at history. You're just not getting at a key component of historical thinking, which is that horizontal contextual component of any one chronological period. Okay, so the, yeah, this? yeah, but the reader, yeah. the reader that he's trying oh, to, right, yeah. that he's marketing to, or he's trying to promote these ideas to, uh, is not. It, it, how do, how are they going to read these these books um, and get what he thinks they should be getting out of these books? Right. Well, for one thing, um, I think his expectations of the reader were just the ability to see some abstract ideas in the text, the ability to abstract out of the text to see some larger movement. And I don't know that, I know that Adler never commissioned any empirical study of how readers do that, right, like how they abstract. But in his experience of teaching great books at the People's Institute and having them taught to him and doing some teaching at Columbia and doing the teaching at the University of Chicago, he and his friends gathered from those experiences that people had, they fundamentally believed that readers had that intellectual ability to abstract out of the text and see some kinds of abstract ideas that were in play and in flow, right? Okay, okay. So, and that's one of the things that he's teaching you, and this goes back to the production of how to read a book. So how to read a book offers kind of three levels of reading. The first one is just this kind of, uh, these are, this is the layout of the book, this is the author. It's kind of a level one, right, of reading where you, you see some literal meaning on the page and you can see kind of what the whole is and now you're trying to understand maybe what the, some of the parts are. And then the second level of reading is where you're really diving into those parts and you're really trying to divide and, and contextual, or not contextualize, but divide and understand the terms that are presented by the author, right? So the whole of how to read a book is this kind of stepwise way into deep reading. So the level two is understanding the terms, and level three, if I, you know, I, I haven't reviewed this for about six months, but I'm just going to shoot from the hip here. I think the level three is what he called, level three or four is what he called syntopical reading, where you're, no, level three was this critical analysis, and level four was some, what they called syntopical reading. 
the level three of reading, you were able to make some judgments about whether you thought the author was uninformed or misinformed or illogical, right? Because you've done this deeper reading where you understand the terms. And then in the very final level, the deepest level of reading, level four, what he called syntopical reading in a later edition of How to Read a Book, that's when you're really able to compare books back and forth with each other. So these projects, it's, it, it's a process. Like Adler and Hutchins and their cohort were teaching a process of learning and critical thinking through how to read a book as applied to these very difficult texts, right? So I, as you see that in the book, one of the reasons why the title is The Dream of a Democratic Culture is that they're trying to teach this deep reading and understanding to enable a critical function where you can put big ideas and play with each other and you can transfer that to the public realm and that you're enabling democracy, which is based on debate, right, and compromise and, and true understanding of the person around you. So uh, you've given me a chance here, and I've circled back to the thesis of the book, which I can't believe I didn't say until this point in the interview. It's just that their dream was that with the great books and with this reading program and by being in conversation with each other in these reading groups and practicing, conversing about deep ideas, that you would transfer that skill to the public sphere and become a really good critical thinker and consumer of political ideas and social ideas and cultural ideas. Now, the, the, all this, the great books were finally compiled in this Britannica set called the Great Books of the Western World. Right. Is right? And, uh, and again, I had asked you this before and I want to re-ask it, but I think it's important. They, they sure. did carry, they did, these, these books carried a lot of weight. And here's a part of a quote on page 40 that you have about, uh, that Robert Hutchins said. He said, great books of the Western world is an act of piety. Here are the sources of our being. Here's our heritage. This is the West. This is the meaning of, of mankind. That is a huge statement. Yeah, huge claim, right? Right. Huge claim. This is so the purpose. Yeah, to set up some context around that quote. So that's Hutchins speaking at uh, a gala dinner that they had for the release of the 1952 set, right? It had been a long slog. It had taken them, you know, seven or eight years to get this set produced. And so they're having this uh, kind of gala dinner, and there are a number of big names in the room, uh, some representatives from all walks of life, uh, but yeah, Hutchins was there. All of Adler's community of discourse was there. There were some politicians there. Uh, another influential figure in, in Adler's life, Jacques Maritain, was there, a French philosopher, French Thomistic philosopher. And so there are these figures that are in the room. And uh, I kind of allude to this in the text that, you know, the wine was flowing, right? The, uh, the feel, everyone's feeling really good about this endeavor that they've spent so much time on. And um, I think that, to get back to the text of that quote, I think Hutchins believed those things, but I also believe that it's a product of the moment, right? Enthusiasm for the moment, right? These are the sources of our being. And you're right that they saw these texts as carrying around a lot of deep cultural, social, and political meaning for the people that would engage them. But I think that as time progressed, they would emphasize that that, that, that those meanings were in a current, a current of change over time, but that these were consistent deep ruts in the river, right, deeper currents in the river, and that there, it wasn't that the, that the discourse couldn't change and that even the meaning of man, right, at the time was is something that people were questioning. Uh, Grief's recent book has uh, put us onto that topic, that the idea of man was in question itself in that period. But... Uh, Yes, they are carrying a lot of weight, and you could argue that they were making a kind of civil religion argument for these texts too, right? So it's about Western culture, it's about democracy, it's about these deep ideas. I mean, for them, it's kind of it's the intellectual life of, of people, and I think that they really did see it as of all people, or at least that was their aspiration. A couple they, of, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I had a question about... Um this whole idea of, uh, and you just mentioned it, that they were going towards a democratic culture. Right. That's not their term. This is a term you, you've 
came up with. Right. Uh, so they believe that these ideas or these books could facilitate a democratic culture. But Adler, Adler and his and his cohorts were not. They were they were liberals. They were not uh, conservative, even though people today see them as conservatives. Right. I think that's really interesting too. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, they, if you look at their actions, their their kind of political projects change over time in relation to some of the promoters. And I really focus mostly on Adler's, but Hutchins' project kind of changes too over time. Um. Yeah, and I do impose that phrase, democratic culture, and I think I make a fair argument in the book that they do everything but say it. They talk all around it, and and their conversation develops over time in a way that converges on that kind of terminology, right? And what do I mean by that? I mean like a, a culture that's concerned with equality, equality of access, equality, in some cases, equality of outcome, even as Adler's... Uh, uh, philosophical writings progress over the period, right? So they are thinking in very deep ways about how to promote and undergird and develop democracy, but also the culture that enables a democracy. And for them, they saw that as a the, the part that they needed to help with. Their vision of helping and creation of that was to foster a, a, a weightier and mightier and more robust intellectual culture one that would result to logic when needed or emotion when needed, you know, all the kind of things that make up our uh, sensibility as humans, right, that they were trying to get that river of deep conversation imbibed in every person so that they would make the their, their political and social context, the United States, because these books were targeted, right, they were built mostly with U.S. citizens in mind, even though they did sell... Uh, sets overseas. For them, it was about spreading, you know, and improving what was American culture, and they conceived of it as democratic. But yeah, the the political project gets uh, interesting over time. I mean, I write about this in the book a little bit, that Adler and Hutchins in the 1940s during World War II became uh, promoters of world federal government, you know. This is no, uh, they were strong promoters of the United Nations and, and Hutchins was a convert from that. He was an isolationist leading up to maybe 1942 or 43 and he has a kind of mid-war epiphany. But anyway, both of them with their great book sensibilities were able to think on more cosmopolitan terms about what the world needed. And I think they would argue that being close to the great books enabled them to change their mind as needed, right? Enabled them to adapt as society would change. Now, uh, you were, as we progress this chronology about Adler's life into the, you know, late 70s and 1980s and early 1990s, we see that he kind of isn't so progressive, right? And he kind of uses the great books for other ends. But, I think by studying his whole life, you see that the great books can be adapted to different kinds of political and cultural projects, right? Now, if they had they had quite a bit of faith in these uh, great ideas, but you know, the 20th century had gone through World War One and Two, devastation of Europe, and Germany, right. who in Germany, which was had been the, the theological and philosophical center of the world, Western right. world. Um, but they still held on to those ideas. Yeah, you know, and that's part of that dreamer utopianism strain that I try to suss out over time as I'm moving the narrative forward, that it becomes more and more clear that their that their vision for what the great books can accomplish is very high-minded. Uh, and I think they knew it. Uh, I think that they knew that they were... Uh, fighting what uh, J.R.R. Tolkien calls in another context the long defeat, right? They knew that their goals were a long way off and it was going to be a lot of educational and cultural and social heavy lifting to reach this kind of more ideal state of society. But I think it was actually those horrors of World War One and World War Two and the Holocaust that deepened their conviction that ideas had to be part of the solution to these deep problems, right? That a deep study of the long history of ideas would be 
both therapeutic and enlightening for people to, to see the kinds of errors that were made in history and the kind of corrections that certain authors had forwarded and the kind of the things that had been left out of prior solutions, right? So, yeah, I think in the, hor- the horrors of the world didn't dissuade them from, from returning and promoting great book, returning to the great books idea and promoting the great books idea. I think it enabled it and deepened it and, and furthered their conviction that this kind of project was really necessary, that, that we lived in an anti-intellectual age and that the great books might help us be a better, create a better intellectual culture. Um, another thing that you, that you were, uh, didn't do that I was hoping you would do is you didn't really, uh, Talk about the connection between, you mentioned it, the connection between Matthew Arnold and his ideas about uh, concentrating all, all things that are sweetness and light and Adler. Right. It, and were those I, those two movements connected? You know, I, I think that they're connected, but not in the ways that have been necessarily portrayed in the scholarship. Um, the, the, the scholarship about Matthew Arnold and his connection to the Great Books idea tends to focus on on Arnold enabling what uh, Joan Shelley Rubin very expertly called a middlebrow culture, right? And what is a middlebrow culture? It's the kind of culture where you you can get a glimpse of these ideas and a glimpse of the aesthetic highs of culture, but you're always not quite there, right, that you're either cheating yourself or being cheated by capitalism in the sense that you, you don't have the great pieces of art in your room. You have reproductions and prints, right, and your efforts at reading are always kind of inadequate, and that's partly because of, you know, you're given too many helps and aids with your books, and that's part of this aspirational middle-brow culture that, she, she, in her book, doesn't believe really enables this kind of deeper intellectual life, right? And, but she connects that back to Matthew Arnold's cultural product, project. And she thinks that I think that it's a, a product of being excessively focused on the best or perfectionism. And that that's a kind of historic anachronism from the Victorian age that certain uh, guardians of culture uh, uh, carried forward. So that's another a brick in, in her story or another element of her story is that Arnoldian culture, not only did it enable a middle-brow culture, but it enabled this kind of cons- class of consumers of culture that only ever purchased mediated cultural projects or products, right? And that there were guardians of culture out there that always translated and uh, made the works more available for you. And then you might become, as a middle-brow cultural consumer, more likely to buy a, a watered-down translation of something or a uh, pop, uh, popular uh, novels rather than actually engaging in the deeper great books or the deeper ideas. So I make an argument, I do it more in a journal article that I published before the book uh, because I just found in the book itself I wanted to focus more on Adler's life and the story of the great books through Adler and Columbia and the University of Chicago and afterwards. But the Arnoldian project and questions I think are actually settled and Adler's picking up on something different from John Erskine. And I think the, one of the pivot points there is what I talked about before is the People's Institute, the notion that high culture could be brought in an unmediated way to working class audiences and that they could really understand it and they didn't need the interference of or translations of guardians of culture and protectors of culture, right? the genteel uh, promoters of culture and how they interpret it for you. Okay, so does that get, does that get yeah, at your question? Yeah, it does. And I okay. wanted to ask you something about the, the conservative relationship to Adler. But before I get to that, I wanted to ask you about what happened to his the great books in terms of the Encyclopedia Britannica, and uh, what you you really talk, I think, and you really about being co-opted sort of by this kind of consumerist approach, right? Because right. Britannica is a corporation and it's trying to make money. 
Yeah, yeah. So Adler, you know, is involved in the project with kind of high ideals, and he may have had some flawed ideals, but he also had some other high-minded aspirations. And all of this gets wrapped up in the creation of Britannica's set, which is published in 1952. And I think that there were 54 volumes in that set, and uh, they're packaged, they look clean, and uh, William Benton, who was the publisher who had hired Adler to work on the project, you know, expected a return, and he believed that the book should sell. And he and Benton is portrayed in a kind of crass fashion in the literature. But Benton, I think, was inspired by the great book's idea, and he wanted to get it into people's hands. But his his way of getting it into people's hands was through selling, right? Like he he believed in the power of markets and marketing, and that the if you could just get the great book's copies out there, that that people would consume them in the way that Adler hoped, right, with through reading groups and how to read a book and the kind of higher ideals. But then, but what happens is as uh, Benton gets frustrated for the first couple of years, like the first three years after the set is produced, that the sales are really poor. And uh, he becomes more and more concerned about how he had laid out, uh, I think it was a at least a million dollars for the labor that Adler and his staff put into creating the idea index that was associated with the set. And uh, so he's becoming increasingly concerned about a return on that investment. But the, thankfully for him, in, in 1955, they hire on an excellent salesman and they find a way to turn around the fates of the set and they're able to increase sales pretty rapidly, I think, in like 56, 57, and 58. And uh, before long, they're selling, you know, 15, 20,000 sets a year, and they're making a lot of money through this. But uh, the salesmen who are involved in this kind of endeavor start to uh, use some questionable sales techniques, and, uh, you know, there becomes a kind of cottage industry also that builds up around the great book set. You know, they come up with a reading plan. They come up with uh, a 10-year reading plan, which is available in another set. They create the Great Ideas Today volumes, which actually have a very useful function of adding new and shorter works that are still very authoritative to the kind of what they were conceiving of as the great book set. So they, they come up with this kind of cottage industry, but there are these extras, right, that are being sold and added on, and there's pressure on the salespeople to produce. And the salespeople do make a lot of money. Um, and so, yeah, over over the course of about five to ten years, I would say from maybe 55 to 65, the high ideals that were involved in producing the set and selling it become subsumed under the kind of larger corporate overlay of Britannica and salespeople and trying to continue to get the sets out there in people's hands. What happens when they get out in people's hands? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they start, eventually they start studying this, right? So uh, at first they just believe that people would be reading them, right? Uh, based on Adler's work and his cohort and Hutchins' work and their time in the university and the People's Institute, they believed that when people bought them, they would actually read them. Now, Hutchins did have a fear from the beginning that he didn't want the set to be furniture for people, right? A very interesting front room furniture that would show your middle class status rather than actually display it. So that was one of the reasons why uh, Adler and Hutchins dreamed up this idea index, which uh, they renamed the Syntopicon which was the kind of great ideas overlay, right? And then Hutchins produced the great conversation volume, which also came with every set that was purchased. So they had reader aids, and then they had the great conversation as an inspirational book when you bought the set. But I don't know that they ever did a lot of follow-up on how the sets were used until maybe 62 or 63. And then they hire a consulting firm to try to really figure out so what are people doing with the sets? And they're they're asking these questions because they start to wonder, when is our sales run going to end, right? We need to stay on top of this, and we need to know how people are using the set. And if we have a better idea of who and how and what, we can target our sales appropriately 
and we can make some subtle adjustments in the kind of accoutrements, right? And so they, they, they uh, have a study of purchasers and readers. And the, one of the most, there are some fascinating things that came out of that study. One of, one of the fascinating things is, is that the, a large proportion of the people who actually bought and read, read the set were people that were like, uh, uh, who had maybe got an undergraduate degree. They were engineers or uh, some kind of technical degree. And then they realized, kind of like myself, right, reverting back to my introduction to the great books, that they knew that there was more learning out there that they hadn't acquired. And so they end up being the really deep readers in the set. And then there's also, uh, there's definitely a gender component to this and a, a proportion of those who showed up as readers were also, you know, in their terms, homemakers and housewives. So there were the two big reader components were these kind of professionals with, you know, an inadequate, uh, they're smart enough to know that they don't know everything and that they need to learn more about the humanities and social sciences and the, the kind of other non-technical things. And then the women, right? So they, they study and then they start to adjust some of their sales tactics, but it all comes crashing down in the late 1960s because people start to lose a faith that this kind of project is supporting a common culture that they believe in, right? So you and I know from studying the 60s that this is a period of great upheaval and that there were some massive changes in what people perceived or desired or even believed in in relation to a common culture or a shared culture. And that's a big turning point, right? This, uh, when the narrative gets to the late 1960s and early 1970s, the sales drop off, but what's really important are the larger uh, changes, what, what uh, Dan Rogers has called the age of fracture. And this is what affects the trajectory of the great books idea. So, um, this is the last part of the book. Uh, it was very interesting. You talk about how Adler really got himself entangled, and the great books became an issue in the culture wars. And right. also, uh, you haven't talked much about how he influenced uh, education. Right, right. Um, yeah, institutional, institutional. He was a popularizer, but in terms of uh, formal education. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, up until the 1970s, Adler wrote a lot about education, but he really wasn't influential in the educational establishment, right? There were just kind of inroads here and there that were minor, but definitely not any kind of national movement. So uh, uh, from the 1940s through the 1950s, there were many higher education institutions that started to create great books projects and programs, and they kind of uh, incorporated Great Books uh, curricula into their larger um, their larger curricula, right? Uh, so you get some inroads on higher education in the late 40s, 50s, and 60s. And then the uh, I haven't mentioned the Great Books Foundation, which was created in, in 1947. Great Books Foundation becomes uh, the more general vehicle for supporting great books reading groups, which became more popular in the 1940s. And so they're targeting adult education for the most part, but in the late 1960s, they start experimenting with, and mid to late 1960s, they start experimenting with getting great books into the hands of middle schoolers and even late elementary school. And that kind of, it happens, but it's on a very small scale in just a few Midwestern uh, cities. I think they had a program in Cleveland and maybe one in Detroit, and they experimented in Chicago. But that just kind of simmers through the 60s and 70s, and so some high schools and, and elementary schools have great books programs, but they're not very big. <clears throat> so Adler in the early 1980s, becomes more inspired to think about the kind of state of public education, late 1970s and early 1980s. And he starts to conceive of a education reform project that he called the Paideia Project. And it had a great book component to it, but it wasn't necessarily great book centered, right? Uh, so he becomes more involved in thinking about education issues and the delivery of education and the, uh, late 70s and 80s, but he still has that air of a great books promoter, right? That's part of his 
uh, educational philosopher persona. And so even while he has this kind of broader education reform program, it has a great books association just by virtue of Adler being involved with it. So there's that element. Um, and we can get into how that, that plays out over the 1980s. But I want to return now to what you were asking me about the politics, because I haven't really addressed that fully, right? I talked a little bit about world federal government earlier. But one of the things I, I start to see and I start to argue more forcefully as the text progress, progresses is that by the 1960s, late 60s and early 70s, Adler, as he starts to write more about philosophy, undergirds his kind of philosophical views with a Great Books education program. And so I, I give it the name of Great Books liberalism because I, I talk about how he uses Great Books to reinforce his political views, but he also uses Great Books when he talks about some necessary reforms that he thinks should happen in, in college curricula and in educational curricula in general. So uh, this Great Books liberalism that Adler develops over time has a strong element of equality associated with it. I mentioned this earlier, equality of access and even equality of outcome at a certain point. And it's very much about reinforcing freedoms and having liberal arts, right, uh, that the Great Books were a liberal arts program that would make people fully realize their freedoms in society, but also their obligations. And so Adler is more of a kind of classic political liberal in that he tries to balance duties along with your freedoms, right? And, uh, you know, there, there's another iteration. There's kind of a great book's conservatism that exists alongside of Adler's liberalism, but he's not a primary promoter of that, that conservatism. The great book, the great books as a conservative project, um, develops in the 50s and becomes a much stronger program and or much uh, have a stronger association with conservatism in the 1970s when Bill Buckley starts to converse with Adler Moore and tries to talk about the great books as supporting a more conservative view, you know, uh, looking back at tradition and appreciating tradition. And these elements were always there, but it doesn't become something that's publicly discussed and more publicly uh, believed in until Buckley takes it on in the 1970s and through the 1980s. And Adler and Buckley had this interesting relationship, which and, and it, it was kind of a, a strange, uh, uh, Adler was definitely a liberal in that relationship, but they had a great rapport together, and Adler ended up being invited on Buckley's firing line programs like a dozen times or maybe 13 or 14 times. He's in the top 10 of guest appearances all time on Buckley's firing line program. So you see that there's an association that develops there, even while Adler is a, a liberal, a very mid-century Schlesingerian kind of liberal, he has a, an association with more conservative figures. Um, yeah, so there's a political project there too. What did you want me to expand on on the education portion? Well, I think we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about the culture wars and how he got kind of involved in that, probably inadvertently. Right. He sort of got caught in it. So talk to me about that. Yeah, so this is uh, its a great segue because it's really Buckley that, uh, in a way, draws him in, right? Uh, so uh, Buckley is invited on Adler's or, or Adler, Adler was invited on Buckley's program in like uh, 1987, shortly after the closing of the American Mind was published, Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind. And Adler hated the book. He really disliked the book, and he felt like Alan Bloom uh, misinformed people about what great books, what the great books idea does, right? And he had a long hostility toward Alan Bloom, I guess, or I don't know exactly how long it, it developed. I can never quite figure that out, but it's evident in the program with when he's talking to Buckley that he has a strong visceral reaction to Alan Bloom's person, Alan Bloom's book, and his association with Leo Strauss. And that's where the connection is, is like Adler disagreed with Leo Strauss as a philosopher, and he had a memory of Robert Hutchins hiring Leo Strauss before uh, Hutchins left the University of Chicago in 1952. 
And, and the reason is um, Adler saw Leo Strauss's view of classical philosophy as elitist, that right or wrong uh, in relation to Strauss's actual writings, Adler saw Strauss as promoting this kind of uh, 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 view of the classics where you needed the intervention of intellectuals. Intellectuals were the ones that were going to unlock the keys for you to understand classical literature. And so here Adler's kind of democratic view of accessibility of the great books really comes through because he thinks that this is entirely mistaken, that we do have access to those deeper ideas, that it's not a program of Gnosticism, right? It's not some kind of thing where you need a, uh, 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 you know, someone to introduce you to the religion of the classics, right? Um, so Adler has this historical animosity to Leo Strauss that he kind of transfers onto Bloom and attributes it to Bloom. And there's, if I read the literature about Bloom correctly, there's some truth to it that, that Alan Bloom had this kind of view of the accessibility of culture that you needed uh, good teachers and that there was a kind of elitist interventionist uh, element to his program. So Adler has a strong reaction to the book on the program. And then they, they also end up discussing the Stanford affair and the Stanford debates. And, um, and so Adler, at this point, he's 86 or so, yeah, or 84. So Adler's getting up there, and I think that what you see when you start studying his writings closely is you see a little, you start to see more inconsistency in his thinking around this time. And I'm not saying that, that Buckley exploited him or anything. I think Adler had a genuine reaction to Bloom's book and, and the connection to Leo Strauss. But it's shortly after that that Adler starts to exhibit traits of a, what I'll call a great book's conservatism. And he carries that trait into the re-edition uh, and republication of the Great Books, the second edition of the Great Books in 1990. And you can read this in my text, but boy, he has some really harsh reactions to critics of the Great Books idea. And I think it kind of all, the culture wars kind of unhinged Adler in a way. And it's really, it's distressing whenever you're a you know, a student of these people, you know, through the historical work and you watch this happen and it's, it becomes a tragedy, right? By the end of my book, uh, Adler is, I, I open my book with these kind of various quotes about Adler that are kind of all over the place, right? He's a genius. He's stupid. He's, you know, he, he's out of touch. He's, he's the exemplar of all philosophy. And I think it all comes out of the kind of end of his days on the public stage when he becomes a, uh, a conservative actor in the culture, or he becomes very defensive about the virtues of the great books idea. So what is your, the takeaway for the reader when, when they read your book, which is very accessible. Yeah. Your book is very accessible. Yeah, I, I think what I want people to know, and I, I say this in several for, fora, that it the Great Books idea can't be owned by any one political program or any one educational program. The Great Books idea is a dynamic thing that can be adapted to a number of political and social projects, and that Adler himself changed over time in how he used and talked about the Great Books idea. And I think the virtue of it, the reason why you would return to the formulation is that it's really a reading program. It's a literacy program. It's a way to uh, enter uh, a deeper citizenship, right? A deeper, um, uh, a deeper engagement with society. And I think that's what attracts people to it: is that you get contact, firsthand contact with those thinkers, right? You're reading the primary text. You're not reading some professor's interpretation or some journalist's interpretation. And you gain confidence and pride as a reader when you encounter those texts in their primary form and you feel like you obtained something from it, right? You conquered it, right? You can kind of stand on it and, you know, hold up your arms in victory that you read Aristotle and you understood a, some significant portion of it, right? And so I think that's one of the takeaways of, like, the kind of positives, why people are attracted to the great books idea and why they return to it, but that it's a flexible thing too, right? that it can be adapted and that many of us 
have a great books idea unwittingly, like that we have a, a hierarchy of books. We have a means of sorting and making our time efficient and designating things great. It's just that some people have been more explicit about it and some people have made some really darn good money off of it. <laughs> well, Tim, uh, you have been very generous with your time and I do have one final question. Uh, what sure. are you working on now? Um, I'm trying to finish a project with, I'm working with a philosopher for, on a book and it's a, it'll be a co-authored book where we're trying to tackle the great books idea from the point of view of history and philosophy. So it, this might sound kind of repetitive on my part, but what, I, what I'm trying to do for this iteration is talk more about the international and cosmopolitan aspects of the project. My book is very America-focused and America-centered. But for this book, uh, like for instance, in the first chapter, I'm talking more in depth about Matthew Arnold and about August Comte and trying to talk about cosmopolitanism and then how that inflects certain developments of the great books idea and how the great books can enable cosmopolitanism. And my philosopher friend is trying to, the title, the working title of the book is The Great Books Controversy. And so we're trying to market this. The book would be marketed in a series for educators to think about controversial and big topics and the history and philosophy of education. Okay. Thank you so much, Tim. It was a great interview. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger. 